Welcome to the City on a Hill Church Forest Hills podcast. We exist to see our neighbors from every culture follow Jesus as King. We're glad you're here and thanks for listening. More information about the life and mission of City on a Hill can be found at coahforesthills.org. Thank you so much, Karen, for reading that scripture. One of our values here at City on a Hill is to be a multicultural church. And so one of the ways that we do that is through celebrating the diversity uh, of languages and cultures that represent our congregation. And so we sometimes we do that through the reading of the scripture. So thank you for doing so. Uh, again, I want to welcome you this morning. If you have not filled out that Connect card, you will see that on the screen. You can scan that QR code um, or go to city on or coaforesthills.org slash connect and fill out uh, that connect card. Our values at City on a Hill are the gospel, community, and mission. The gospel is the good news that Jesus loves us, that God loves us so much that he gave his son to die in our place, and that for all who trust Jesus, they can spend eternity with God. Uh, through that, we, we have community built around that good news, around that gospel, and we believe that our lives change for the better when we have relationships that are centered around Jesus. And lastly, mission, that the gospel is just too good to keep to ourselves. So we live out that good news in the words that we say and the lives that we live. And so with that in mind, a couple of announcements. Uh, the first thing is we have a, uh, a Halloween outreach coming up next Saturday uh, on Halloween. It's been kind of a weird year this year with uh, with uh, the coronavirus and the CDC is saying that you know trick-or-treating might not be the best of ideas. So we wanted to provide a kind of a one-stop shop for families and kids to come and dress up and get candy and uh, be able to get their their photo taken. So you can find out more information about that uh, on our, our website, coedforesthills.org slash events, or also there will be a QR code there on the screen that you can scan and get some more information about that. Secondly, the other announcement is that our next in-person service is going to be a cup in a couple of weeks. We love gathering together on Facebook, but there's just something about getting together in person. So that's going to be on Sunday, November 8th. Uh, again, on the screen, you'll see a QR code that you can scan in order to register for that event. We ask that you do try to pre-register just so we know who's coming and we can properly social distance and, uh, and serve you well in doing so. Uh, this morning, we continue our series through the Sermon on the Mount. Over the last several weeks, uh, really since the beginning of uh, or middle of September, We've been looking at Matthew chapter five through seven. This is the, the largest section of Jesus's teaching. And in this, we, we're in this part right now where we're looking at the, this idea of greater righteousness. Jesus said in, in um, chapter five, verse 20, he talked about this righteousness that exceeds that of the teachers of the day, that it's not just an outward behavior, but it's an inner disposition of the heart that Jesus requires in order for us to live out the good and flourishing life that he promises in his word. He says that this is the good life, the flourishing life. And in order to live a life that you uh, love others correctly, that you don't become angry with them, you don't lust and use people, or in, this, in that you use your words rightly, requires this renewed heart that Jesus, through his work, gives you this new heart. And so this is the idea of what the kingdom of God is going to be like. This is Jesus's advertising campaign, a new people, not a process, but a new people living on a new paradigm in the world. And this new people living out this ethic of the kingdom of God is a group of people who are loving each other, a group of people who value each other. They don't use each other. And that, this idea of love is the key. Love is central to the Christian gospel. Or as Tim Keller says, that the Christian gospel is that I'm so flawed that Jesus had to die for me. 
Yet I'm so loved and valued that Jesus was glad to die for me. This leads to deep humility and deep confidence at the same time. It undermines both swaggering and sniveling. I cannot feel superior to anyone, and yet I have nothing to prove to anyone. I do not think more of myself nor less of myself. Instead, I think of myself less. This is the love that embodies the kingdom of God, that exemplifies what God's kingdom is going to be be like. And so for those who've trusted Jesus, we've received this love. We've received this mercy that we're known and loved, and we're called to extend that love to other people that we don't keep this to ourselves, that we make sure that others receive that love. And so here at the end of chapter five, Jesus lays out something that's unprecedented. He makes this unprecedented statement that is unique to the Bible. Jesus says, love your enemies. Love your enemies. There have been other ancient thinkers who had said similar things, but not quite like Jesus said it. Others had made more general statements about what it meant to, you know, uh, you choose love over hate, but none of them had put it like Jesus said. Jesus says, not just love over hate, but actually love the ones who hate you. Love the individuals who are persecuting you. This is groundbreaking from Jesus because what is love? We need to have a good definition of love. Love is, love is not just sentiment. It's not just a feeling within our souls, but it's a choice to choose the better for someone else. And God, according to the Bible, is love. So love is bound up and defined by who God is. It's wrapped up in his character and his nature and his attributes. And so that means that love is truthful, but it's also gracious that love is, is just, but it's also merciful. And you see these tensions between these two things that love can be both truthful and gracious and, and just and merciful, and they're not done at the expense of each other. And that's the compelling nature of love. Love compels. And a compelling love is exactly what we need right now. For Christians living out the life of the kingdom in the world that we're living in right now, we need a compelling witness that is both both convictional and compassionate, both convictional and compassionate and fueled by love. And so the life we're being called to live is this life of compelling love. So the big idea that we're going to unpack today is that the gospel frees us to love in a compelling way. The gospel frees us to love in a compelling way. So what does this compelling love look like? The first thing we see is that love is compelling when it's unexpected. Love is is compelling when it's unexpected. So what does unexpected love look like? According to Jesus, it means not seeking to retaliate when someone does wrong to you. In verses 38 through 42, there's, there are some statements that if you've never actually read the Bible, you've probably heard some of these statements. Uh, you've probably heard phrases like eye for an eye or tooth for a tooth, this idea of kind of equal justice. You've, you've heard statements such as turning the other cheek and this kind of this idea of being the bigger person. You, you've heard of going the extra mile as, you know, putting in even more effort than is expected of you. But I want to give some context as to what Jesus is describing here. He's talking about a well-known legal code. 
this legal code of, of the eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth that we see in verse 38 uh, was, was actually something that was created to ensure that equal justice occurred. In the ancient world, the way it used to be was that if someone did something towards you, they offended you. The expectation is not that you would get even, but that you would escalate the justice. So if someone killed your cow, you would burn their farm down. That was, that was expected. And so this idea of eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth was put in place in order to stop total retribution to occur. It was actually put in place to make sure that equal justice happened, that the punishment fit the crime. And so this idea, which began to take root in the ancient world to, to bring equity, uh, is, is what our modern legal code is based off of. We have an amendment about, about, you know, a cruel and unusual punishment that you shouldn't, that the, that the, the punishment should match the crime. So Jesus is actually not saying that eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth is bad. He's actually saying this is a good thing. And this idea of getting even, it feels really natural, doesn't it? We love fairness. We love the idea of, of things being even. We want things to be just. If you go out to dinner with friends, you hope that they split the check with you. You hope that they're willing to break that down the middle. By the way, Venmo has changed that. So nobody can skate and say, oh, I forgot my wallet or I don't have any cash. You're, you're stuck. And we're going to make sure this is even. We say things like, don't get mad, get even. This is why CSI is the most popular show on TV because it's these hour-long snippets where the bad guy gets caught and everything is made right. So whether it's CSI New York or LA or Miami or Northern Iowa, whatever it is, at the end of the episode, the bad guy gets caught and justice is done. We liked this idea of equal justice and equal fairness. You get what you deserve. But Jesus says this, he says, do you wanna know what love really looks like? Love costs you something. In verse 39, Jesus says, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And I wanna stop and explain what Jesus is saying here. This is, this is a passage that has been misunderstood. Sometimes it's been misused. Some have actually weaponized this passage to justify oppression or abuse. The abuser doesn't get to use this as a way to control someone. That, that's not what's being said here. Some have taken this passage to be overly literal, especially as you get toward the end in verse 42 about giving to the one who asks from you. It's not saying that if someone comes up to you and asks you for your house, you're required to give it to them. It doesn't mean you have to be a pacifist. It, it doesn't mean that. I mean, it would be unloving to my children to give my house away with nowhere for them to go. We have to look at this in the context of the entire Bible. So a great principle for you, if you're at home and you've either never read the Bible or you're new to reading the Bible and you're interested, is that scripture interprets scripture. In other words, we look at the Bible in context. We, you know, so things don't contradict, they work together. We have to look at everything else. So what Jesus is saying here is he's not saying, let people walk all over you. He's not saying that the principle here is that if somebody hits you in the face, you have to let them hit you again. And in fact, Jesus didn't even do that. If you look at John chapter 18, um, Jesus gets hit in the face as he's on trial. And his question is, is why did you hit me? He appeals to the law and asks them, what did he actually do wrong? 
Paul, in, in the book of Acts, appeals to Caesar because he was thrown in jail without trial. So what's being said here is this, is that, is, yes, call out injustices, call out wrongs. When something, so when something like this happens, appeal to it, but yet don't seek revenge on your own. In fact, the cost that you may have to bear is that you love others by putting them ahead of yourself. In Philippians 2, uh, verse 3, we see one of the 59 one another statements in the Bible. It says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Consider others first. And so the, there's an ethic that Jesus is laying out here. He's giving these four examples as a way to show you that you are to lay your own interests down for the sake of other people. And so, for example, when someone insults you, you don't have to do the same back. The idea of slapping someone in the face here is not like walking up to somebody and just punching them in the jaw. It's not about physical harm, but it was an insult. This is, this is a shame and an honor culture. So if you were to walk up to somebody and slap them in the face, it might not do physical harm, but it was meant to do emotional and societal harm. What Jesus is saying is be willing to endure that because you don't have to justify yourself. The idea of the tunic and the cloak in verse 40 is very similar. If, if someone's suing you and, and, they, and they want to take your tunic, give them your cloak as well. Well, so in Exodus chapter 22, it actually says that not to take a person's cloak. And the reason was, is a cloak was like a big, heavy outer layer, kind of like a, you know, an ancient Snuggie that you would put on. And it was to keep you warm. Okay, it was to keep you warm. So to take someone's cloak was inhumane. Jesus is saying, be willing to inconvenience yourself for the sake of another, to shame yourself for the sake of another. Be so willing to inconvenience yourself and lay down your self-interest that you do not have to justify yourself, but trust God who judges justly on your behalf and who will vindicate you. It means you can seek justice, you can seek for things to be right, but that you also forgive. You lay down the right to retaliate. And it's not weakness to do so. And it doesn't downplay sin. Forgiveness takes strength. In fact, Tony Evans says that forgiveness is not pretending like it didn't happen. Forgiveness is the decision to release a debt in spite of how you feel. It's to release a debt in spite of how you feel. It doesn't downplay the event itself, but actually says, I'm going to choose to forego seeking retribution on my own behalf. It's saying, I trust you, God. I believe that you will make all things right and make all things right, even in relation to this person, that you will do right justice by me, either through that person's salvation and all of their sins being put upon Jesus or in the judgment to come, you will make everything right. Now, for some of you, you've been hurt deeply by others. You've been hurt in ways that, many of us may not be able to understand. You've been deeply wrong. See, you, you can hope in God here because there's two things. And again, I'm not saying let, just let people keep sinning against you, let people run over you because there's a difference between forgiveness and trust. If someone steals your cell phone from your house, you can forgive them, but it 
I, I don't know that I would trust them to be alone at your house anymore. That, that's wisdom. Forgiveness differs from reconciliation. The forgiveness is a choice by one that is not dependent upon the other, but reconciliation is both parties agreeing that a wrong has occurred and that something needs to be made right. But there's hope here because in Jesus, there is forgiveness. All sins, all wrongs will be dealt with. Love costs you in this way. The second way love costs you is that when people use you, it's okay. Verse 41, and if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. The picture here is, it's almost like the old cop movies where the the police officer would commandeer someone's car. In the ancient world, uh, a Roman soldier could go to any citizen and tell them, hey, I need you to take this package or I need you to go with me. We need to go this, this mile and we need to take this thing to that place. And what he's saying here is don't do it begrudgingly. He's using you, but Go the extra mile, go above and beyond. The same idea with the beggar. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Jesus is saying this is okay because that's love. Love is self-giving. It's becoming a servant. And, And the kingdom is marked by radical generosity and radical hospitality Uh, hospitality. And if you are radically generous and hospitable, people will use you sometimes. But it images the love of God. It's worth it. We do a lot of things in our community. We serve our community in, in several different ways. And we do so not with the promise of reciprocity. We don't love our neighbors just so that they'll come to a church service. And we, we give thousands of dollars to go to our groceries or towards kids' activity bags, not just so that somebody will come to church on a Sunday, but because we're called to love others with the love of Jesus. And it costs us something. And, and that's the compelling part of the gospel, that you serve others without the promise that they're gonna love you back, without the promise that they're going to reciprocate in the relationship. And, and it happens in such a way that people look and say, why do you keep loving us? this way. That's unexpected love. But secondly, love is compelling when it's undeserved. Okay, so Jesus, it sounds like Jesus is saying, do nice things, you know, bite your lip, grit your teeth, deal with people. Don't punch that dude in the jaw. If he slaps you, he's saying, don't, don't do that. But here's where Jesus really jumps the shark. He says, not, don't just serve them. Don't just forgive them, but love your enemies. Love your enemies. Not not tolerate your enemies, not like your enemies, love your enemies. He says in verse 43, you've heard it that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. This is a tricky passage here because the first part of it is very clear. Leviticus 19.18 was known as the golden rule, love your neighbor as yourself. In other words, treat others like you would like to be treated. Jesus, This is clear. Jesus is saying this, but nowhere in the Old Testament did it say, hate your enemy. Nowhere in the Old Testament did it directly say you should hate your enemy while you love 
your neighbor. There were times in the Old Testament where God said that he would deal with those who are around Israel that, uh, that oppressed them, that hated them. He said he would deal with them justly. And there were some very wicked uh, people around them. There were people who were sacrificing children and mistreating, mistreating other people. And so God said he would deal with them. And, but in fact, he said that you should act charitably towards your enemy. So, so what's happening here? How did the idea of, of hating your enemy become something that was so clearly understood, so clearly lived out, that was, it was an ethic of the culture? It's because it was a narrowing of who the neighbor was. See, the, the idea of loving your neighbor, we see Jesus mention this multiple times. And in the Gospel of Luke, another bo- a book in the Bible, Jesus says this again, and, and someone responds to Jesus this time, and they say, who is my neighbor? So love my neighbor, but, but who is my neighbor? And what's behind that question? Do you know what that question's saying? Do I really have to love them? Do, do I really have to love that person? Do I really have to love someone who looks differently than me, who thinks different than me, has a different sexual ethic than me, who comes from a different neighborhood and a different background, who has different values than me, do I really have to love that person? And that question right there is as old as creation itself because it sounds like another question that was asked in the garden to the first people who were created. As the serpent asked Eve, the very first question, did God really say that? Are you sure that's what God said? A questioning of what God calls good. And in the same way, what we often do is we want to narrow the idea of love down to people that we like, that we're predisposed to be around, people who look and act like us. But Jesus says, no, love even your enemies. Love and pray for those who persecute you earnestly. Seek their good. Pray for them to flourish. This is what it means to live in Jesus's kingdom, that you love the same way that God loves in the same way that he loves us. Not saying that sin's okay, because that's not loving. Not upholding injustice, because that's not loving. Not saying that evil is good. That's not love. But loving and acting lovingly, kindly, and compassionately towards people, regardless of how they treat you. In fact, loving those who treat you poorly. And in doing so, Jesus says, so, verse 45, that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. This is what it means to be like God to love those who are unlovable. This is what it means to be a peacemaker. As we looked at this back in the Beatitudes, the very first week of the series of being a peacemaker. And a peacemaker is someone who doesn't stand for false peace, but seeks for shalom, to make all things right. Do you want to know whether you're following Jesus? How do you think about your enemies? And, and what's being said here is it's not saying that this will save you. If you love your enemies, then you're saved. But this is evidence of the fact that you understand the gospel, that you have been loved by God. 
But in the next couple of words, Jesus compares this to the way that God blesses people in the world. It says, for he, God, makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. So why does Jesus compare us loving our enemies to God sending the sunshine and the rain? See, this is the idea of common grace. You know, in the, in the old world, what would happen is that people believed that the, if your crops were flourishing, that meant that the gods approved of you. And so if they weren't, you were doing something wrong. But here God says that, no, his common grace is that he will, he will, the sun will shine on both the just and the unjust or, or, or on the evil and the good and the sin, the rain on the, on the just and the unjust, that it doesn't matter. It's not that you're doing something to get blessings from God, but yet that God in his kindness in his world is blessing those who don't deserve it and blessing them in such a way that this is not saving grace but it points them to saving grace. The Bible says that we all know God exists through creation. The creation itself is pointing to the beauty and the majesty and the creative fervor and flavor of God. That God created this beautiful world that we live in. It points us to the creator. And what we're doing through loving others is imaging that same common grace pointing people to saving grace. It's saying, I will love you and I will give myself away for you. I will seek your good and I will pray for you no matter what. Just like someone who does not trust God and does not thank them for the blessings that he gives them, whether they know it or not, we love people not expecting anything in return. And in fact, loving those who don't like us back. And this does something incredible in Romans 12, verse 20 and 21 it's talking about not taking justice into our own hands. And, and, and Paul says to the Romans, to the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Because it points to the love of Christ. See, love, real love, God's love has to extend beyond people that you naturally are drawn to. If you want to love like Jesus loves, you have to love your enemy. And so in verses 46 and 47, Jesus points this out. He says, for if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? That's easy. Do not even the tax collectors do that, do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. It's easy to love those who love you. It's easy to greet your brother or someone who looks like you. Jesus is saying, look, everybody does that. Tax collectors were extortionists. What they would do is that they would sell their own countrymen out to the Roman Empire and, what, and they, would, they would bid to see who could get the most taxes out of their neighbors and their friends. They were hated by others. But the, what they would do is they would gather together in these, these tax collector communities because nobody else wanted to be their friends. The same with Gentiles. These were the non-religious people. They would huddle together and have community. They were nice to each other. Now, I was just watching this, this documentary called Fear City. Fear City, and I love all things mob, mafia. I'm Italian, so maybe I don't, I don't think I have any mob family. But it was, I loved this series because it was about how the, the New York uh, attorney's uh, office, district attorney's office, and the FBI brought down the mafia in New York City. 
And they talk, the investigators talked about this unique relationship between the investigators and the mafia, how there was this strange respect between them and how the mafia actually had this code of love and care for each other. What Jesus is saying here is, look, the mob even loves each other. Extortionists even love each other. People who don't even know God love people who are like them. But compassionate, compelling love extends to those who don't naturally love you back. And we have to love our enemies. And we see several areas that we need to do this to image the kingdom of God. And one of them is a hot button issue right now, and that's politics. Look, I'm not gonna tell you who to vote for, but I will say this, love your political enemies. Pray for them. Pray for people who vote differently than you. Learn to be friends with people you disagree with. Pray for politicians. I'm going to say this right now because I think for a lot of people, he's public enemy number one. Pray for Donald Trump. Pray for his good. Like when, he, when he got COVID, you should, have, you should have been praying for him because he's someone made in the image of God. If you disagree with Joe Biden, you should be praying for him. As Christians, we are called to hold up the ethics of the kingdom before our political preferences. This is what it means to be a compelling, compassionate witness, that we're willing to call out what's wrong, but we're not willing to demonize anyone. Love those who hurt you. Not to say what they did is okay, but to say, I refuse to hate you for what you've done. I refuse to hold a grudge against you. And I will forgive you because of what, how Jesus has forgiven me. And I will pray for you, not like Old Testament imprecatory prayers where you're praying down the judgment of God on someone, but for God to grip their hearts. See, community, this beautiful and biblical, is when, when people who don't naturally get along become family. When people who are not naturally friends, who don't look alike or think alike or enjoy the same things, come together under the banner of Jesus. Or as the early church father, Justin Martyr said, we used to hate and destroy one another and refuse to associate with people of another race or country. Now, because of Christ, we live together with such people and pray for our enemies. See, if you don't love your enemy and pray for people who hurt you, I don't know that you can truly experience love. You can truly experience love because you've not been able to truly experience forgiveness. See, covenant relationship where you look at another person, we talked about this in marriage a few weeks ago, but even as the church, it's a type of covenant where we say, you know what, I'm not leaving even if you hurt me. Covenant relationships allow the opportunity for forgiveness to happen. But the cancel culture that we live in, what it does is it tends to make that circle of friendship get even smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller in order to cut people out to avoid pain. And what we do by avoiding pain is we also avoid love. And we avoid being known and loved. So how could you possibly love your enemy? What Jesus is proposing here sounds impossible. You can love your enemy because that's how Jesus loved you. The heart of the gospel is this. It is compelling love. It is convictional that your sin is not okay. 
but it's compassionate that Jesus did something about it. Jesus modeled love for enemy by loving you, his enemy, by loving me, his enemy, and not, not by seeking retribution that our sin deserves. First Peter 2, verses 21 through 24, for two this you have been called because Jesus also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. Through the cross, Jesus was mocked, spat on, beaten, and he didn't retaliate. And he would have been justified to do so but instead he, instead he stayed and said, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they do. Jesus loved his enemies through the ultimate sacrifice of love, dying in our place. That while we were still sinners, enemies of God, he died for us. And when you see that, when you understand what Jesus has done for you, you stop looking at other people as your enemy. You, would you stop looking at them an enemy, as an enemy and you look at others as others who need grace just as much as you do? This is how the gospel changes us. 1 John 4, 8 through 11. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this, the love of God has been made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation or the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Looking to the love of Jesus on the cross produces love for others that you don't naturally have. And at the cross, this is also where justice occurs, that every sin that you have ever committed was put on Jesus' shoulders, that Jesus bore your sins at the cross, bore the punishment you deserve, but not just that. He took every sin ever committed against you so, no, so that not only would your guilt be taken away, but also your shame, that that was put upon Jesus and he paid for that with his blood. And so what we're called to do is we're called to be perfect, as verse 48 says, as your heavenly father is perfect. In other words, perfect, to be wholehearted in our love for others. Like Jesus wholeheartedly loved us. So how do we do that? How do we respond to that? You've got to see how sinful you are. Until you see how messed up you are, you can't see how beautiful the cross is. Until you see the problem, you can't see the solution, that our hearts are filled with hatred, our hearts are filled with lust and with jealousy and pride that separates us from God. And, and if you've never seen that before, I don't know that you know Jesus. Because if, if you were to wonder as you stand before God why he would accept you, if, if your answer is, you know what, I love people pretty well. I'm, I'm a pretty good person. I do pretty well. I don't think you've seen your need for Jesus. And I call you to trust him. 
See, seeing that you're capable of the worst sins possible humbles you. And unless you know that you've been forgiven, you can't radically love others. Secondly, you have to trust the gospel. You have to believe that you're deeply loved and known by Jesus, that your sins have been forgiven and taken care of and that you can trust him. And we're called to pray. Pray for the spirit to empower you to do what you can't do, that you are called to live this life. And through Jesus, who did it on your behalf, the Holy Spirit empowers you to love others in ways that you can't. Praying, God, Spirit, help me to love like you've loved. And then actually pray for your enemies. Like, I'm going to start praying for, for Ku Klux Klan members to come to faith in Jesus, to lay down their pride, to lay down their racism. I want to pray for those who are, are far from God, who hate the church, who hate me, who, 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 who seem so far from God, and pray that God would bless them and they would help be, they would be helped see their need for him. And it works. I promise it does. So, well, I used to be a youth pastor in Colorado and I had a, a youth group of about eight kids. And I walked in pretty foolish, young in ministry. And I said, hey, I want you to go. I want you to find the one person in your school who's like the least likely to come to church. I want you to pray for them, tell them about Jesus and invite them. And do you know what those kids did? They prayed for them. They told them about Jesus and they invited them. And I, we had kids coming to faith in Jesus every single week who you never thought would have because somebody said, I'm gonna step across the line and I'm gonna love you in a way that's unexpected. I'm gonna love you in a way that's undeserved because that's how Jesus loved me. And then lastly, pray that we find ways to serve and bless those who don't love us. What's one step you can take to serve somebody who maybe you've had a hard time with? Maybe somebody who's treated you poorly. How can you image the love of God by serving them in simple ways? Let us be people who love in a compelling way that people will see the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. 